You're listening to the Irish Times. So we have some added, added time podcast for people this added, week. Added, added, I see what you did there. <laughs> Indeed, yes, we do. Could have called it extra time, I suppose. No, super added, added time. Uh, you were at a gig last night, Monarchy. I was at a gig last night, Pat. Yes, it was um, uh, ahead of big weekend, Ireland playing France in the Viva on Sunday. Uh, there was an Irish Times event last night uh, out in the Land Rover headquarters in Sandyford with myself, Jerry Thornley, Jamie Heaslip and Brian O'Driscoll. Oh, that's quite a star-studded lineup. Well, I mean, if you take me out of it, yeah, it's it's very star-studded, yeah. Yes, three Irish rugby legends and you. And me, yeah, standing there like a sore thumb. Um, but uh, yes, for some unknown reason, I was put in charge of it, which is, you know, which is a slight on them as much as anything. But uh, it was actually mighty crack. It was great crack. What they, kind of stuff were you talking so, about? So, like, the two lads and Jerry were, like, they had a great repartee together, like, obviously... Jamie and Brian know each other going way back all the years. Uh, there's loads of old yarns, loads of stories. Uh, Draco told the story about uh, the night of his uh, hat-trick in Paris. The long, long night that <laughs> ended included uh, him getting punched in a taxi and puking on the side of the Champs-Élysées um, and ending with a phone call to Rob Henderson's mom uh, er- early the next morning. Um uh, Jamie uh, told the, the you know the story of the night of his first cap, uh, which ends in, in in similar circumstances. Although the Leinster doctor was involved in that, um, a lot of drinking in rugby. You know, mm. where, where, when the time time was right. Yeah, uh, but it was more than that. It was more more than just old rugby tales. It was you know the the, the lads were it it actually for a good ten minutes of it turned into a a fairly deep psycho- psychological. Um, uh, drilling down into Johnny Sexton uh, by the two lads, which is fascinating, really fascinating. Like they were, they were kind of talking like as if they were kind of like with huge affection, but also you don't mess with this guy, you know. And you, and as in that his 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 mindset is just absolutely. that of a winner. Yeah, always. yeah, yeah, yeah. And like they were so both of them just so impressed with him, like from the first day they they knew him, you know. Um, and and lots of really interesting stuff about Joe Schmidt as well. Um, so it was fascinating. It was um, yeah, it was, it was great crack. Are they broadly positive about the weekend coming? Absolutely. Oh, good. Yeah, absolutely, and and so much so that that like I started off by uh, by asking the the crowd. There was a a, a crowd of uh, Irish Times readers uh, came along, and um, I started off by asking for a show of hands in the crowd say who's worried you know because we're all worried you know what, what what what's going on here and so of the of the people in the crowd I, th- I think about half the hands went up so I, I I threw it to Brian then I said Brian what do you think oh ye of little faith <laughs> <laughs> that's a wrap that's it we can all go home um you're not worried no I'm not I'm not um you know what are we three, four, four months since the All Black performance. Yeah. And then the game after that, well, sorry, they, they obviously had one more performance after that. And then we came across an English team. By the way, the English team were the third best team in the world. Mm. Us, the second best. We shouldn't be that shocked that they managed to turn <laughs> us over. 
uh, as much as we were getting incredibly bullish, and I as well was getting was losing the run of myself that no English player would get in this Irish team, and so on and so forth. We got I'm glad well you and, brought we, that up. We got well and truly humbled, um, and it has knocked the stuffing out of us. There's no doubt. Um, but that said, it is a fine margin game at the top level, and. You know, Joe Schmidt teams are all about detail, and I just sense there's a little bit of detail off. We've had a, a number of injuries and you know, replacements coming in, and it's good for, for building for the World Cup squad, but ultimately it's been uh, at the loss of, of, of form in the Six Nations. And I still think that you know, they'll click definitely in one of the next two games, and you know, better the next one rather than the Welsh game, but... <laughs> If we denied them the Grand Slam, that would be pretty sweet too. So we do like to deny teams Grand Slams as well as win the occasional one ourselves. Yeah. So I, I don't think there's any panic. I, you know, jo, Jamie and I have both been part of Joe Schmidt's squads and he breeds an infectious positivity. And the players, as much as they had their, their confidence knocked, they, you know, they are still the same players that went and beat the best team in the world a few months back. What do you think, Jamie? When do we panic? I, you know, I'm kind of agreeing with Brian in terms of it is a game of marginal gains uh, at that level, at that international level. Um, if you look back to 12 months ago when they won the Grand Slam, they won it, you know, quite convincingly. But some of the games, they were really, really fine margins. I mean, you look at the France game, they didn't look like they were going to win that game except for an unbelievable effort in was it, 44 phases or something for the drop goal. The Wales game an intercept try in the last kind of play of the game when Wales are pushing it, you know, it's a one-score game otherwise, and that kind of blows out of proportion. And then they, go, they do go to Twickenham and win there, albeit against an English side that was pretty poor on the day. In Australia, they won a series just about against an appalling Australia side. Um, so, I mean, they were winning games, but not in typical Joe fashion, you know, they, they were winning them really clinically and doing what they have to do. They were being challenged at times, and it wasn't really until the New Zealand game where uh, you know, I kept saying, like, this can go either way still, I thought personally. But New Zealand, they, it, everything clicked for them. The team knew exactly what they had to do. Emotionally, they were there as well. And they were, you know, to deny, deny a New Zealand side from scoring any try to show the classes where they're at. So to Brian's point, they don't turn into a bad team overnight. I mean whatever it was, what you say, three months later, they're playing in the Six Nations. You don't turn into a bad team like that. You don't turn into a bad players. Yes, it's not clicking for them, but just as quickly, it could turn on on, on come Tuesday. They could get that switch that they, they need to make in terms of the, some of the little errors or little details. And the Brian kind of highlighted that they need to kind of polish up a little bit. Um, but I'm still full of confidence because if you think about it coming into a World Cup, so let's get the Six Nations out of the way. We can still technically win it, I think, albeit it's a long shot, but let's just get that out of the way. If you're looking at the World Cup, they get to camp at the middle to end of June. They come into camp, and it's pretty full on. So he'll be able to pick from a full deck of players. Everyone will be fit. He'll have them together, have that collective, and they'll be in a much better spot than, than where they are now. During the, Just the way the season is on, it's, it's a tough season to constantly stay up at those busy heights. But I think if they get a break they have that run, they're going to be an incredibly hard team to stop. Jerry, isn't that the, the thing? Jamie was saying they don't become a bad team. We were saying this on, on the podcast on Monday. You don't need to become a bad team for things to be, go wrong. All you need is become an uncertain team 
or a team that can't do right for doing wrong. And that's, that's sort of what they look like now, a team that's sort of stuck somewhere. Yeah, I, if I could have one moment back in Rome, it would be uh, the first line-out. John Cronin, the sun squinted into his eyes, and he overthrows slightly to Peter Armani. If he hits Peter Armani there, and the team rumbles over for an early seven-pointer, I really wonder how differently the game... I, I do agree with the lads that I've watched so many games that just hinge on one or two moments. And I remember Jamie's early try in the opening game of the uh, 09 Grand Slam against France, and your 14 teammates all jumped on you. It was a brilliant try. And Brian, you got one later that day. And it was like, that was after a really bad World Cup, after a really bad November, and you know the players are at a low ebb. And in one bound, you broke free. And it, I think it can just can flip so easy. Six Nations particularly is very rarely linear. It doesn't just go like that. Wales were awful in the first half and Paris were handed the game the second half. Weren't particularly good in Rome, but blew England out the gate. Were brilliant in the second half against England. France, look at France. Like they were brilliant in the first half against Wales. Self-implode in the second half, gave Wales a win. Barely turned up in Twickenham and turned up with the wrong team and looked disinterested. And then third game out, pick a different team click upon or stumble upon a winning formula, a formula that worked for them, and were outstanding in the third match against Scotland. So I think it wouldn't surprise me if this Irish team suddenly clicked against France on Sunday and finished with two good performances. But going back to the original question, I would be a little bit maybe worried, or certainly I'm confused as to what exactly has gone wrong, but I would be hopeful that there's one or two big performances still left in the Six Nations. But there needs to be in terms of the World Cup going forward. It, co it couldn't continue like this for two more games. That could be damaging. Yeah, I, I agree with you. The, the bit that I picked up on at the, at the very beginning is that the Irish Times now have a podcast. <laughs> you mean you Mon don't listen to it, no? Mo Monday mornings, 10 o'clock, Brian. <laughs> Whatever you're doing, you're more than welcome to come in. So off the ball have a challenge, do they? Is that what we're saying? This off is, the this ball, is, what's this, that? This is continuity off the ball. Seeing as we're banned from going on there, we do our own podcast. <laughs> it's funny, it's funny to Israel, just come back to your point of losing games, winning games. I don't think, I think Delalio was saying it at some function with you, Brian. It was interesting to hear his take on it, seeing that he's the, you know, part of it, one of the few teams that have won the World Cup from the Northern Hemisphere. Um, he, his take was, uh, was interesting where he thought that, okay, you can lose one game maybe in that run-in coming to the World Cup, but losing two games or three games is, is not, it doesn't do great for the mindset or the confidence of the side, but also in terms of being able to be, like, if you win a World Cup, you got to win, was it seven games pretty much on the bounce? Well, six, definitely six. Yeah, yeah. So, it, I mean, it, they've got to be able to do it consistently. So they lose the fir first one. If they lose tomorrow or lose against Wales, it wouldn't fill me with full of confidence, but I still think they're in a good place. And what it, what it also does, it, it gives everyone else hope that all of a sudden yeah. this Irish team, you know, it wasn't just England with a huge performance that managed to get it done, that a French team that we don't know what to expect managed to turn them over, or Wales and Cardiff have too much. And, you know, England rode that crest of a wave in 2003, no doubt. They then went down to New Zealand and won a test series down there uh, that summer and then went on, and I think it's, it, would be, it would be more difficult if there was a loss um, in the next two games to be able to bounce back and to expect to go and win it, whatever about getting to a semi-final, but then to go and think, you know, afresh in September, well, here we go, seven from seven. That's a, it's a pretty big ask. So, 
we talk in generalities quite a bit. You know, we talk about, you know, it's just not clicking or we talk about, you know, it's a body language thing or whatever. Break it down for me. What, what technically, what is wrong? What, what has not looked right in these games? Um, our halfbacks, you know, are, I, I don't think that the two of them um, are hitting anything like the form that we've seen in the last number of years. And they're the fulcrum of your team. They are the heartbeat of it. And when they're a little bit off, naturally the rest of the team is going to be off. Um, you know, a bad, a, a bad Conor Murray and a, and a bad um, Johnny Sexton, you know, still okay though. You know, they're still they're that caliber of player where it's not catastrophic. They can still get the game, get the job done against Italy. But for us to be successful and to, to continue hitting those dizzy heights of the last year, they have to be really on form. And Connor's just coming back still. I think he's still coming back from, from that neck injury that, he, that had him out for five months. Um, Johnny, I, I sense, has a couple of niggles as well and, and doesn't quite look himself and, and is just struggling for a little bit of form. So you get the two of them back playing and, and finding their mojo again, I think you'll see a very different team because everything, I think, I'm, I'm sorry, one other loss I think has been huge has been Devon Toner. Um, we saw what he did against New Zealand, you know, providing line-out ball, guaranteed line-out ball, pretty much. Even if the hooker's throw isn't that fantastic, when you're six foot ten, it's kind of hard to miss someone that tall. Um, so his delivery down to Connor Murray and the knock-on effect of his quality pass to, to, to Johnny and, and so on and so forth, everyone's just a little bit stuttery or a little bit checking their run, and that means defenders aren't stuck down, therefore the space that you ordinarily are trying to create out wide doesn't happen. And it's just those small little cumulative effects are actually uh, having a, a detrimental uh, result in, in, in how potent our attack has been. That's the thing with a team sport. Everybody depends on everybody else, and one little knock-on is another little knock-on, and that's how it goes. Jamie, like, then go back. Go back to, let, let's take the, ha the, the two lads, Johnny and Connor. Go back to times in your career when you were stuck in a bad patch of bad form or something like that. How do you work your way out of that? How do you think your way out of it? I never had bad form. <laughs> Brian. <when laughs> How long? Four or five hours, you say, huh? <laughs> uh, I think, like, you just stick with, you try and trust the process. I think I read something, like, whenever I actually, like, meet, the guys socially, I, I, I find I reluctantly I don't ask them a whole lot about sport. One of my best mates is Keen Healy. He was over on Sunday. Like in general, he just wants to talk about making knives and like coffee. <laughs> so that's I'm safe in his hands. But um, you know, from what I can see with them, and if it is a confidence issue, the way I uh, dealt with it and the way I read in terms of what Johnny kind of mentioned in in the press was that he just. They just—it's quite frustrating because they're sticking to the same. They're sticking to the right processes. They're they're doing the work during the week, and it's just not clicking. And sometimes maybe they they're they feel like they're kind of forcing it a little bit, and they might feel that that pressure get into them. But good players, you know, they'll never—they might blow a little bit hot, a little bit cold. But like Brian said, people like Connor, people like Johnny—they're special individuals. You know, even an off day for them is like someone's top game. They're like. Conor Murray on his day is the best scrum half in the world. Johnny Sexton is one of, is one of the best hands in the world. Um, we need them playing well, like Brian said. I think the, the worrying thing for me when I look at the side right now is they're actually, the team is so set-piece focused. Um, from their scrum, their line-out in Joe's system, it's everything. 
launching you into four or five phases, phases where he's able to, like, you know, playing chess, move the pieces around the board to exploit something. You saw it in the Italy game, actually, when Stockdale with his try. How many times have you seen that try with Stockdale, Brian, the, the Billy pass back in? Um, and that's Joe, that, that's everyone knowing their exact role. But they haven't been, they've been getting their launch play. But what teams have been doing really well is going after those first four or five phases and slowing down the rook ball. And then that's having a knock-on phase where you saw it against England and Scotland for the first half where the defensive line is just getting off, getting off the line, and they're, they're getting out the first receiver, putting Johnny under massive pressure. I think the passing skills of the 12 and 13 currently, the different combinations that they use have been put under pressure, and the ball just isn't getting out, and they're quite easy to defend against. Um, it's a bit rich coming from a, a forward talking about backline play, I suppose, but defensively, that's what I'm seeing that teams are doing really well against Ireland. And then we're being forced to kick, and our kicking game, our kick chase, just isn't as good as it probably has been in the past. And, and those two things are kind of hand in hand with each other. And that's the worrying thing for me. But again, they're fine margins, mm. you know. And um, that's a collision thing. That's why I think someone like Sean O'Brien has been so influential. And a bit, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious to see how it pans out for the rest of the, the Six Nations for him because he's been such, he's been one forward in the in the team, and one player in the team I think who's been actually getting over the game line for Ireland, no one else really has been, and, and that's huge. I mean, it's a simple game sometimes. Sometimes you just got to get over the game line, create momentum, and then life is a whole lot easier because the defensive line can't get set and can't get off as aggressively. Jerry, um, you had the team essentially for, for Saturday. Do, do you want to say it off the top of your head or do you want me to read it out? There's, there's nobody here from the Indo or the Mail or Archie here. <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> 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 this is off the record then. This It'll is not be, for quoting. Don't worry, somebody will have yeah, the, the, on joe.ie by I, I, the end look, of the night. I, I, I have a pretty good record of guessing these teams because of a lot of sources around through Irish rugby and players gossip. But what I'm hearing, um, Sean O'Brien might not even be in the 23. Um, yeah, that's what I'm hearing. because uh, And it was a bit of a pointer last week when he wasn't brought to the Belfast camp and Josh Van de Fleer was and Jack Conan was and even Dan Levy was. So I'm told it could be up to about seven changes with Gary Ringrose coming back into the back line and then five changes up front maybe with Keane Healy, Rory Best coming back into front row, as you would have known about Keane Healy, I presume. Um, Ian Henderson. And, Is he bringing his knives? <laughs> Ian Henderson in the second row with James Ryan and CJ Stander back in the back row along, alongside Josh van der Fleer with Jack Conan on the bench. And I'm not sure about the second row cover. Could be Alton Delan, could be Tyg Byrne. And I think it's John Ryan, I think it's Niall Scannell, and I think it's David Coyne, and I think it's Kieran Marmion, Jack Carty, and Jordan Larmer. So, uh, I, we were talking about it beforehand, like... Uh, They're really better not be anybody from the end <laughs> here. <laughs> I love that, I think. <laughs> that didn't sound like it, uh, and I think... It just came off the tongue yeah, real easy, that, didn't it? That is... That is That's, that's as close as you know. For years, by the way, show that us used your to phone. <laughs> we'll see a little JS text message there. <laughs> Isn't it funny though? Like I got, the, I got the team right one day, and uh, just before the press conference started, Joe Schmidt came past me and looked at me and went, "You little weasel." <laughs> <laughs> it used to drive Joe buck ape. Is that right? It, with oh, yeah. him get, oh, yeah. oh yeah, yeah. Like for for years there, then he wouldn't. He'd, he'd, he'd tell the team internally who the 15 was, but wouldn't name the bench for those reasons. And it used to drive him absolutely. I, I thought it was hilarious. Like, but I think he tried to sift, you know, yeah, sift the, it 100%. Out, you know, work it out. So dropping in dummy teams and to different sources to see where it would pop up. 
It's like something the mafia would do. Meanwhile, France named their team on Tuesday. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of funny because a guy who likes to be certain, like sometimes he kind of pushed, he, over the years, um, he pushed it out more and more and more to the Thursday to even tell the team what the actual starting team was in certain positions. Um, and for a guy who used to, like his whole mantra was when, when, like when we were playing together, Brian was, if you didn't train on a Tuesday, you weren't playing on, on the Saturday. It was as simple as that because he wanted to give the team certainty. But he's gotten so paranoid now that he just lets it roll till Thursday. And then it's, it's chaos in there because guys don't know who's getting picked come until Thursday, which doesn't give you a great window in terms of your preparation. Is he that paranoid? Um, yeah, probably. Um, it's, more, it's more controlling, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, think, yeah, I think it's that. I, um, but the funny thing is, you know, everything that Jamie says, it's true, but it, it's how he manages to keep that competitive edge with everyone as well. Because I, like, I was 31 when Joe came in uh, into Leinster initially, and I spent the next four years trying to prove to him that I was a decent player. Yeah. I literally felt like every week it was, it was, it was like a, a dog looking for approval from its owner, you know? And, um, and he'd pick and choose his moments and he'd drop different centers in at different times and he'd just have you second guessing yourself. But I think, you know, he, he, his ability to do that keeps that fire and that, and that desire from everybody burning. It's the, it's the Brian Cody thing. Jackie Tyrrell always talks about Brian Cody would make a speech after a match and talk and say, there's a couple of fellas here who need to look at what they're doing. And everybody in the room, no matter whether they were Henry Shefflin or DJ Carey, would walk away thinking, he's talking about me. Mm. And it's that, he's, he called it studied instability. And that's it, it making everybody worry that they're the one that he's talking about. It's, it's funny, the only person that it probably doesn't register with is, is um, Johnny Sexton. In fact, <laughs> we, we, used to get a, a, a tip, we used to get a tip sheet as to what we were planning to do um, for, for a game. So it would come out on like a Monday or a Tuesday. We'd signed off at the end of the page as JS, and none of us knew if it was Joe Schmidt or Johnny Sexton that wrote it up. <laughs> Like it was, they were both coaching the team, and one, and just and just one of them happened to be playing on Saturday. Johnny doesn't worry too much about that sort of stuff. He does. He doesn't. He gets his eight hours every single night. Um, tell me about playing France. You, how like? Obviously, you had. I remember at least one good game you had against them. Um, yeah, we had a little bit of success. Had some some um, some miserable days too. Um, Jerry told me my stats earlier on today that I lost nine, won five, and drew one. Um, Things which, got better once you left, then. Basically, yeah. I, you know, it was a, a bit like um, a bit like um, when the All the All Blacks victories. I didn't realise I was holding the Irish team back for fifteen years on trying to beat the All Blacks. Um, but it, it's turned out to be the case. There you go. Um, but, yeah, no, we had some good days from, from early on, obviously, um, winning in, in uh, Stade de France for the first time in, in 28 years, in 2000, and then you know, waiting another 15 years to, to or 14 years to, to beat them in, in my final game and winning the championship in, you know, in, in very, very exciting, tense moments. Yeah, I've, I've got some great memories, but some disappointments too. The World Cup in 2003, where they, they smashed us in the quarterfinal and 
that, that first game in Croke Park where I was, I was sitting on, on the sidelines watching us throw away uh, vict- or, you know, having defeat snatched in, uh, from, the, from the face of victory. Um, so, you know, there's a bit of a mixed bag in there, but some, some really good memories, particularly 2000 um, and, uh, and Stade de France. And boy, did we celebrate that one. Jerry, you were there in 2000, I guess. Yeah. Jerry, Jerry's been there since the 80s, I think. <laughs> 98. Two years earlier was my first one. Jer- Two Jerry, years, Jerry celebrated his 50th birthday in 2000 <laughs> over there. <laughs> that old one, Brian. Yeah, very good. Um, <laughs> I was there first off in 98. I, I took over from Edmund Van Esbeck in 97. And um, it was a grim first year, beaten at home by Scotland. I'm going, what have I done? What have I done taking this bloody rugby job in the Irish Times? You, you could have stayed watching St. Pat's doing yeah, the League of Ireland gig. Believe me, it looked better at that stage in the late 90s until your man came along and, you know, and Gaddy too, in fairness to him. It, it, it really started to improve in the late 90s. And I was there in 98 when the Irish team stayed in Versailles, in the Palace in Versailles, Hotel, Palace Hotel in Versailles. And uh, Gaddy was his first game, I think. Brian, you knew the lads were involved then. Brian came along two years later. But um, there was... The French had done, uh, L'Equipe had done top 10 biggest French victories in history a couple of days before the game. In other words, where's this one going to fit in? Because Ireland were that bad at the time and France were Grand Slam champions. Um, France were, Ireland were 16 to 1 to win the match and 33 point underdogs in one game. And Gaddy had this great idea to get away from all the negative publicity around the team that he would invite everybody to send in goodwill messages by fax, as it was in those days, by fax. And they streamed in, and he plastered the team room wall with all these good luck messages from kids, from mums, from clubs, from everybody. It was, it was an old, little old blacks thing. And Brian O'Brien, the then manager, brought me in and just showed me the room. Like, it was quite, it was very moving. It just got bypassed all the negative publicity. And they came out, they'd lost 18-16. They were actually winning the game up until about seven minutes from the end. They could have won it. Then along, two years later, they go back there, and that one was it, 28 years? And your man gets his hat-trick. I remember it was a Sunday game, so I had to write a live report, so that was pressure. And then we actually won, and Brian got the hat-trick, so it was full-on pressure. But, yeah, it changed his life, I know. Everybody wanted to piece him for the next few days, and there was an outer body, Brian O'Driscoll, for the next few days, as opposed to an inner body one. I have a very vague recollection of meeting Brian O'Driscoll very late that night in the Champs-Élysées. <laughs> Suffice to say, Mal, he is less of a recollection of it. <laughs> I know for a fact that Rob Henderson, who set up one of your tries brilliantly, good old Hendo, uh, with a night outside break, little inside offload, came back to the team hotel at half one in the morning, and Brian was stretched out on a chaise lounge, whatever, and he goes, this guy's just scored a hat-trick for Ireland. He's not going to bed. He picked you up, brought you through the revolving doors, back down to the Champs-Élysées for an omelette. An omelette and chips. <laughs> You take it over. And a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, it was... Well, the cheapest on your menu, garçon. <laughs> was it a karaoke bar or something? Yeah, it was the only place... We, so the only way we could get some liquor was to eat some food. So we ordered an omelette and chips. Again, probably the cheapest thing on the menu. And um, anyway, we, yeah, there was a bit of singing going on. Just the two of us. It was like a date. <laughs> and... Anyway, we got out onto the Champs-Élysées and it felt like... You know, the minstrel came up, you know, up, up the road and hit us in the face, just a gust of wind. I was like, Hendo, I don't think I'm so good here. <laughs> and I, start, I started reproducing my omelette and chips on the side of the Champs-Élysées. And he said, he, he looks over me and he goes, 
Six hours ago, you were scoring a hat-trick in the Stade de France. God, if the country could see you now. <laughs> another another, and, another and little part of that, that story. Another little part of that story. Thank, thank they, God camera phones hadn't been invented. Yeah, exactly. They get back to uh, the team hotel at about half five in the morning and reliably informed by your central midfield partner. And it was his mum's 50th birthday the next day. So he got you to ring her and wish her a happy birthday. And he, you didn't remember this, no? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, Mrs. So, Henderson, yes, of course. <laughs> happy birthday, Mrs. Henderson. So he hands the phone back to Rob, and Rob's mother comes on the phone and says, Son, I love you very much, but don't ever call me at this hour again. <laughs> I, I, what actually happened in advance of getting back to the hotel, um, we were drinking in Kitty O'Shea's and Mick Galway and his wife Joan decided that I'd had enough at, I don't know what time it was, so it must have been one or half one. And uh, we decided, <clears throat> well he decided for me that we were going back. And uh, we got into a cab, anyway, we got a bit peckish on the way home. This is a true story. And um, we see a kebab shop um, on, en route. So Jane, uh, Joan stays in the car and myself and Mick go into this kebab shop. There's a few lads at the front of the counter. We go down the back and we're having a bit of a laugh and we order kebabs, two each for ourselves and of course we'll be generous and get Joan one. Um, <laughs> so um, we're walking out and not really paying any attention. We kept you know, to ourselves, get into the cab and, uh, and just, I close the door over, I'm the, the, the last one in and just as the car's about to pull off, the door opens up and this haymaker of a dig comes in and catches me square in the head. I'm going, sorry, what's just happened here? So I kind of go to get out and Golov grabs hold of me and pulls me back in, pulls the door off, uh, the closed and tells the taxi man, off we go to the hotel. So to this day, we've no idea why I got a dig in the head. <laughs> so so at least I tell you what it didn't do, it didn't stop me from going back out again that night. So just to recap, in six hours, you played an international rugby match, went on the piss, ate two kebabs, got a box in the head, ate an omelette and drank a bottle of wine. I am surprised that it was only the omelette came out. Is that what the aftermath of games are? Is like no, but Jen, no, no, but all, all, in all seriousness, like, does that still happen? Does it like after a game like that? Does does everybody kind of disappear into the night into their own? Well, groups? if that happened now, like, like I mean, unfortunately, guys can't blow off steam like they used to. It'd be all like there'd be a picture taken or video taken and it blown completely out of context, and then everyone would be holier than thou judging someone else for blowing a bit of steam To be up. fair, I'd say the context was fairly clear. Or, or, or in context, which is even worse. Yeah. <laughs> we still don't know about the point, right? But, um, it, like, I'm not saying, like, lads go out and they enjoy themselves and all that, but, um, you know, they are under another, a completely different level of scrutiny. I was trying to explain to Gary Ringrose just before I finished about, like, he was like, oh, what was it like when there wasn't any camera phones? And, and I was like, oh, God. I am, it was that moment, you know, I had my Mallow Kelly moment basically in the change room where I was like, shit, I'm old. I'm that bloke that's played with everyone. 
do you play with that guy? He was like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I remember doing that with Mal. <laughs> um, but I had to think about it. I had to think, like, when, when was it? And I actually think it was probably the 09 Lions Tour, Brian said, Africa was the last one where you could, you, could let, you could let loose and let off steam and not worry about it getting picked up somewhere. Um, that on that trip, like that was probably, I always say it was my, it was by far my favorite tour I've ever been on. Um, we were like, we were out twice a week, basically. Um, but it was like, it was like the last old school tour. Like there was, everyone was- You mustn't have been part of the Monday night club as well. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, I, I think that was for I the was elder still, statesman. Was, yeah. <laughs> that was you and O'Connor. Just <laughs> but it was great. You know, you're, you're like, you played a game on a Wednesday, played again on a Saturday. And if you played on the Wednesday, or down, every, everyone was down in the team room afterwards and they had a beer or two. The team that played went out. And if you were doubling up, you could peel off if you had to like double up on Saturday, but otherwise you were out. Um, and it was great and nothing ever got out. Nothing was ever reported on. Um, we still played some fantastic rugby. We nearly won the series. Should, should, have, be, should have at least you know, had, a, had a game in the third test. That was such yeah. a brilliant tour. Yeah. And it wasn't, do you know what, it's, it's, it's why the best, the, the best tour probably to go on is South Africa, is, bec is largely because of the time zone. Because in Australia and New Zealand, you're playing games at seven, eight o'clock, sometimes nine o'clock, and then those that have watched the game might go back to the hotel, but by the time those that have played have come back, everyone else is in bed or it's too late to go out, whereas kickoffs are three, four o'clock. Worst case scenario, everyone gets back to the hotel for seven o'clock. You can have a couple of beers if that's all you want and go off to bed or you want to hang out with people. Or you can go out and not drink, but you get to spend time with one another. Yeah. And, and I think that's why it was, it was such a great tour and, and why we re I think as a squad, we really got on very well, played some yeah. fantastic rugby and, and should have done a bit better in the test series than we did. It was by far my, my, kind of my favorite moment. Um, but to come back to France games, um, I, well, Brian, Brian probably has stories on me that I'm not willing to tell. But, uh, <laughs> but in terms all right, of like... There's, there's nobody from the Indo here. <laughs> Jerry has already taken care of that. But like in terms of moments against them, it's a funny one. Um, I've had, I, I think I've had more, Jerry, correct me if I'm wrong. I've, I've had more success than loss against French sides over the years. I'm not too sure statistically, but... Um, it's close. Okay, what is it? I think it's five wins, one draw, six defeats. Oh, okay. Oh, that and Brian's though. <laughs> but no, it, I, I always, it was funny. Like I always loved the French games because, kind of similar to Brian, when he had that hat trick game. Um, I think I had my kind of coming to the stage moment uh, in Crow Park in '09, and um, that kind of kicked things off for me at an international level. And, and I'll always remember it was around that time that. Um, I think Liam's got his 50 a capture in that that series, and I remember I remember you actually said I stand beside you, and I heard he got his 50 a captain going, you know that's an established, that's an established international getting 50 it, and it was just everything that was going on that try, that kind of the way that um, Six Nations was going for us, and I was like, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to get to 50, 50 a cap? So it was just a big kind of starting point and launch point for uh, for my international career. And did you puke on the side of <laughs> O'Connell Street <laughs> later that night? Um, what did I do? Like that, when we won the Grand Slam, I don't think I slept for about three or four days. Like I was, I was 25, pretty much lived in Coppers for that week. 
Um, it was, I had the time of my life. Um, the, the one time I, I did get sick actually was probably the night of my first cap. And I had a lot to do with, with Brian and, uh, and Simon Best actually. And our doctor, Jim McShane. Um, at the time, I don't know if anyone knows Jim McShane, but at uh, least there was a doctor involved. Yeah, well, you think he would be looking after me, but it was quite the opposite, actually. He he was rubbing his back and pulling his hair back while he was getting sick. Very responsible. So obviously, one of the one of the things is um, one of the traditions with a first cap is, you know, um, you go, uh, one member of your team come up to you and give you a drink. They have to do a drink with you, and and you finish it in one. But thing is, they obviously do one with you, but you've. 14 players in, with you on the team, and if the opposition get involved, you have to oblige them as well. Rugby. Yeah. <laughs> and Bri Brian, Brian being tactical as ever, like, he probably came to me at about, I was about, I don't know, six, seven drinks in, and Brian's one was, was the biggest, it wasn't even a glass, it was like a vat of red wine. <laughs> <laughs> And as I see him walking toward, I'm looking at it, and I was like, oh, Jesus, here we go. I don't drink, I don't really drink wine. And I was like, this is going to be tough. But out of nowhere, Simon Best comes, pulls up right up to me, sticks a shot of wild turkey whiskey in front of me. So I had to do a shot of that, and then Brian sticks the goblet of red wine in front of me. He drinks it like it was milk. <laughs> Just do-do-do-do-do. I'm struggling to get it down. It's going all over me. And then I was just like, mm, mm. and then I held it together. I held it together. But then Jim McShane, um, it, was, it was during the, when did I get capped? Oh, six. So it was November series. I wasn't starting a lot of the games. I just kind of played one game in that series. So I was going to play the next week with Leinster. Jim McShane, he was Leinster doctor at the time, kind of grabs me, pulls me aside. So I was a bit wobbly. And just to make sure, brings me to the jacks, looks at me and goes, stick your fingers down your throat. <laughs> And I was like, Jim, I don't, Very sensible. I don't want Very that. I don't want it, Jim. He goes, stick your fingers down your throat. You're playing for Lancer next week. You need to be good. I, I, I don't know if that's I, what a doctor's meant I, to do for you. I, I thought it was like they're meant to look after you. What, what year in med school do you learn that? <laughs> and there we were in the sideline wondering why Lancer would never do anything. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, no, sorry. Uh, that's my kind of um, story on that, yeah. Let's bring it back to, to where they are at the minute. Um, one thing I want to ask you guys, like, we on the outside, no matter how close we are to it, and Jerry's far, obviously, as close as anybody can get, still, still, uh, still admitting that there is that wall there. What do we get wrong on the outside? Like, what, what is going on in a team that is sort of stuck in a mini rut at the minute, that we're all assuming our own thoughts about it, but what, what are we getting wrong? Sorry, from, from, like, from like the media, media... Media perspective, public perspective, we're looking in from the outside, we're looking at body language and analysing that and all that sort of stuff. Like, is that all just nonsense? I did have to laugh at the, at the Johnny thing, like, where... Kicking the towel. Kicking Oh, it's disgraceful. Like, that are you kidding me? They were, like, so I was at a thing last night, and they were like... He was so disrespectful to Jack Carty, wasn't he? <laughs> and I was like, sorry? What, what did he do? Did you not see him kick it? Kick that towel. And I was like, you're kidding me. I saw him high-five him, saying best of luck as he comes on, and then he kicks the towel on the sideline, and you're saying he's lost the plot altogether. We're all played a year for kicking a towel. And that, that gets, drives me a little bit mad, where people think it's like a simple, like a really binary 
not in, not in one kind of situation that is the easy fix. You know, um, we're both, I think it's fair to say, we said there's not a lot wrong with the team, you know, and, and it could just very quickly switch. But people are just trying to, I think they're just getting stuck in the weeds with, with going deep in the weeds and in thinking there's something must be at the, you know, there must be a kernel of it that there's, there's just something at this squad that we don't know. And it could just be like, bounce of a ball kind of thing that's just not happening for them or like that they haven't coped with Joe Schmidt leaving you know oh yeah you know like, like Warren Gatlin's leaving Wales it's not doing them any harm is it no <laughs> it's it, it it does it baffles me a little bit you know um and maybe maybe I'm just I'm still kind of holding on to you know being a former player and 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 kind of fighting the player side on it maybe a little bit I, I don't know but it, I, I do struggle with it with with because I'm, I'm, I'm in a normal workplace with people in an office and they're talking around it. I'm kind of looking at them going, you don't, have, you don't have a clue. Like the lads are just, they're doing the same thing they're doing every other week. They're training the same. They're probably training harder, if anything. Um, you know, people are like, I heard another come going, they need to go on a night out. That will sort it out. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what? Go on the piss on a Friday before the game? Like uh, some ex international from a long time ago literally said they should go on the piss on a Wednesday night before an international. <laughs> I, was, I was like, I'm sorry, lads, the game has moved on since 30 odd years ago when you played. Um, and that just doesn't happen now. Yeah. Um, so it, it, look, it, I don't know. Brian might have a bit, a bit of a different take on it. But. No, I, I don't. I think I, I find myself defending them as well. Yeah. You can't help because cause how, can, how can people turn so quickly on the side, you know? Yes. I think it's because we've, what we've achieved in the last 12 months is the greatest year of Irish rugby ever, by a long way. Um, winning a Grand Slam, beating the All Blacks, winning a, 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 a tour in Australia for the first time in 40 years. Um, and yet, really quickly, we've won bad performance still, and then two, and two victories. So, and we're still giving- Nine out, points away still, from home in the last two games. We're still giving out about it. And yeah, listen, I was on TV doing the, the Italian game. They will be disappointed, but ultimately they got five points. And, and, and Johnny, you know, kicking the towel when he's going off, he's kicking it because he's just been subbed off having made a mistake. And it probably was just the timing of it. He was coming off anyway, but the, his, last, his last moment in the game was throwing a dodgy pass. And he doesn't get an opportunity to rectify that. And that's just a frustration. That and would Johnny annoy, does kick that well. That would, that would annoy anyone. And, and the players would and be particularly little, Johnny. Yeah. The players would be used to Johnny getting a bit grumpy at times, wouldn't they? Oh. I, I used to love in training. Oh man, I used to love how Owen Redden dealt with it. In so the best way to deal with Johnny when in training, when he used to get in fairness, you and Johnny used to have some great battles with each other in, on, on, in training, going at each other. Two serious, probably two of the most competitive people I've ever seen. I, I tend to be quite laid back in training. Um, the two boys. There's going to be a winner. Not so much. And there can only be one winner normally between those two. But it used to be quite amusing. But Owen Redden had a great trick with dealing with Johnny. He would, Johnny would go off the rails giving out. Because he's a special... I always say to people, like, take, um, take um, basketball, for example. I'm a big NBA fan, right? It takes a special type of player to be the guy who's looking for the ball at the buzzer to take that winning shot. He's that, he's that type of player. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's that type of competitor. He's, he's setting the standard very, very high for both himself and others, and he's going to hold everyone accountable to it. So in training, when he goes off the rails, it's, it, it comes from a good place, but sometimes he just goes, book ape, right? And Owen Redden used to have a great... It would drive him mad. It would just go, yes, Johnny. 
Johnny be like, oh, you fucking, you got to pass this. You did wrong. Oh, this is the move. Oh. Yes. Yes, Johnny. And we just move on with it. And you just see Johnny. It was like a robot. Like the brain just like steam just started coming out from the ears. Um, and I always found it quite amusing. So that's when, that, when I saw Reds are doing it, I, that's what I would do to deal with Johnny, just to piss him off, just to wind him up even more. And I used to get great crack out of it. But um, it, it's, he, he's, he's a competitor, man. And, and um, it, you know, he, he's always going to be that competitor. And, and that's the player that you don't get to be World Player of the Year without being that kind of guy, do you? <laughs> I hope there's no cameras here. There's no one from the end, though. But it, it was like, do you know what? It was... When you were, had an argument with Johnny, it was like having an argument with my wife. <laughs> Where you wouldn't say anything at the time, but he'd bring it up three months later. <laughs> it was just festering away there, bubbling away in the background, and I was oblivious to it. And then at the opportune moment, bang! And he'd let me have it, and I'd be like, what are you talking about? You threw a dodgy pass to me in the Italian game. It's like, we haven't played the Italian since, like, <laughs> since spring. It's Christmas. Uh, I wonder if it's now the time to tell you guys that this will be released as a podcast. <laughs> uh, he, he, he's funny, like, I mean, like, I have a lot of time for him, but he's just, he's just trying to be a competitor. And, and I, I, I heard him coming under criticism. Um, regarding that kind of how sometimes it fizzles, it, people think it fizzles over. But look, you mean, you, you've got to be in um, emotionally a particular space, a mindset to, to do what you have to do on a rugby field. And particularly in that role that like, you've got to understand that the 10 role is, he's effectively the quarterback of the team. Everything goes through him. He is this, when we, like when we both would have played with Johnny, he pretty much like the 10 calls the shots in terms of the play sheet. This is the move that we're doing. He's the one that it all rests on. And um, yes, you can have other leaders in the team and help him out, but he's the ones that he knows that playbook inside out. He knows why we're doing it, where we're doing it, when we're doing it. Um, and there's a lot of pressure um, on the nine and 10 combination, particularly the 10. But also in, in elite sports and, and teams, people don't care about that stuff. You know, they don't care about a guy who loses his temper. They, you know, if he's good enough, they understand who he is and how to play with him. That's, that's the point of team sport. You learn how to meld all the characters together. Yeah, like he had, you would never want to dampen that, yeah. that personality trait. Um, now other players will come in and do it differently and that's fine, but if he starts, if he loses that spark, it's all over for Johnny Sexton. So he's tried to, you know, it's funny, even when he's captain, you know, in the Munster game earlier in the year, where he's captain and he's trying to be the captain person, individual, and be sensible, but that other person bursts out <laughs> and they just can't keep a lid on it. <laughs> but that's great too, you know, because that, that, that winning desire still burns bright in him and that's what makes him such an, an exceptional player and, and a dream to play with. And, and, you know, Jamie got it in one. He, everything went through him. I could, I could facilitate a backs play into him, but ultimately, he was calling all the shots, and he knew the playbook backwards, but he also knew every single person's role for four or five phases. Like, there were guys that didn't know their own role, 
and, 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 and when, you, when you got it wrong, Johnny went through you for a shortcut because he knew exactly what you were meant to be doing. Don't worry. His, his, his own role was second nature, but he could pick and choose and tell why someone hadn't run a correct line four phases into off a, off a launch play, off a scrum or a line out. Like he's, he's an encyclopedic um, knowledge of, of rugby and of anything that's gone in the past and that anything that's been done at training, it's, it's, it's quite amazing. He's also, he's younger than you guys. Was he like that from the start? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Johnny was in the academy same time as, as me. I'm, I might look a little bit older than him. <laughs> I'm not that much older than him. Right? Uh, no, he's in, the same, he's in academy same time as me. I personally love the way that Brian brings up the, brings up the academy picture every so often on social media of Johnny. If, if you haven't seen it, by the way, Brian will happily put it out there again. Maybe this weekend or something. Or do you want to? Yeah. <laughs> Sit tight. <laughs> the never forget is just, it's priceless. Um, but yeah, he's, he's always been a competitor. And um, he, the thing about Johnny is that he, he actually didn't have it easy for a long time. I mean, he had to, he had to bide his time in terms of breaking through. Um, 24, I think, when he yeah. got to 20, yeah. And it would have been a frustrating time for him. Um, he did, he had a day job. He, he had a year doing a day job in an office. Yeah, he look, he he found it tough to break through. It's hilarious. All my mates who played in the AAL against him absolutely hate him, <laughs> um, because he's that. You see him on the field. He's actually toned down now compared to what he was when he was in his early twenties. Because like, there were I tell you what, there was there was no fourth official and nothing was getting recorded back then, so you could say and do what you wanted, right? And uh, my my team. Like my mates from Nace and stuff who would have played against him, absolutely hate him because he would just be yap 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 all day on the field at the opposition, at his own teammates, at the ref, at the person in the crowd, the dog as well, <laughs> everyone. And so he's quieting down a little bit. Um, but he had a, he had it tough to break through, and it wasn't until Felipe got injured in um, the semi final, wasn't it, that he came through, and then next thing everyone was like, "Who's this kid?" Steps up. I think he comes straight on, steps up, takes a kick, doesn't he, in the semis. Um, no bother to him, on he gets, and then next thing he just takes over. I and mean, actually, to be honest, I reckon if Johnny hadn't got injured in the, before the semi-final in 2010, we probably would have had a bloody good shot at, at going through because mm. I think we ended up going through like our second or third mm. choice out half that yeah. day. Um, but that's why he's probably a competitor and he has that, that, that burn in him because he's, he's had it tough relatively the whole time. I actually didn't realize that he'd, he'd worked in an office for, for a year. I, I would say HR had an absolute <laughs> ball with him. He actually like, says it to oh me now. Oh my God. Funny he went into professional rugby thereafter. <laughs> An old male sport, good. He's there, because uh, I'm working a normal nine to five job now uh, during the week. And he was like, he's actually like that going, I don't think, I actually, I don't think I could do that. <laughs> he's like, I was like, you are dead right, Johnny. No, you can't tell your boss that he's up. And you know, and you he's actually the only one. you can't tell your inferiors either. No, he's the only one that I've seen that, that has actually won a rugby argument, Joe Schmidt. He's the only one what? I've ever seen. Yeah, it's happened once. Do tell. I, well, it, it went to, it was like they were talking another language, to be honest. They went, they just went to another stratosphere. Everyone else in the room was just like. <laughs> <laughs> and neither would give up, but that's why we're all asleep. Well, it's going to be a while here, guys. Just make, put the kettle on. Um, but they're the, he, and he's the only one that, that would constantly go against Joe. 
Um, because they're quite similar, aren't they, in terms of the, that, what Brian said, that kind of uh, encyclopedia of knowledge of, of the sport, because they both watch so much rugby. You talk to Johnny's wife, like, and she'd be, <laughs> she'd be like, you think he comes home and doesn't want to watch rugby, but he's up early in the morning. It's not to play with the kids. He's got the super <laughs> rugby on, and then whatever else follows. Then there's going to be the premiership that Brian's on, and then there's going to be Pro 12 as well, and then he's probably got to catch the French League as well. He's got to catch it all. Um, so he, uh, he's, he's non-stop with the game, non -stop. She's actually a phenomenal analyst herself through, um, <laughs> through watching so much rugby too, so. Just to put a little bit of balance here, he's also searingly honest. He's one of the best players a journalist could ever, ever interview. He just tells it as it is. He can't help himself. He's just a very honest bloke by nature. And he's actually good humour too. He's a funny guy too. He's an yeah. intelligent guy, a funny guy. He's not always Mr Grumpy now, is yeah. he? You get him going, he's, he's, he's great, he's great crack when you get him going. But he, he keeps his guard up a lot. But you're right, he's, he is one of, and I like him for that colour, like in terms of a character. Because a lot of players are, are um, you know, they can be, you know, they, they can put the guard up, particularly in, in media, and you probably know that. And he doesn't. He, no, he kind of tells it how it is. Um, and sometimes that gets him in trouble, and sometimes it doesn't, but you know... He'll see, he, he will say in the media what he'll say to your face, and, and that's kind of what you want. Jerry, let's uh, bring it round to finish it off. What's going to happen on Sunday? What did Joe tell you, Jerry? <laughs> <laughs> it should be a real short conversation <laughs> if we're going on what Joe told him. Don't you forget, I'm Joe's little weasel. Um, uh, yeah, the match on, on Sunday, I do think that... Uh, I think France are a fascinating case, as usual. They're always fascinating. Whether they're terrible or they're brilliant or they're somewhere in between or they're rotating between the two, they're fascinating. Like, they, I don't know, did they just stumble upon this formula? Did the players take over? But, like, five minutes into the game against Italy, Antoine Dupont, their 22-year-old scrum half, rips the ball from Nick Gregg. He's facing his own goal line. Thomas Ramos, a 23-year-old fullback, making his first test start at fullback, steams up on the ball, calls for it. Out in the wide left channels, Romain Intimac, the 19-year-old Toulouse out half, drops back for the counter-attack. Uh, Gail Fiku, who spent six years at Toulouse, drops back with them. And Johan Uge, another Toulouse player, drops back. And they go wide left, make rolls up the left. A couple of recycles later, score a try in the corner. It's just vintage Toulouse play. Heads up, transition from defence to attack like that. And I think they'll try and bring that to the Aviv on Sunday. And if they get an early score through it, poof, then it's game on. But I do think this is a little bit like Leinster, Toulouse and microcosm. Yeah. I think that... Leinster will have done their prep in Toulouse, and Saint Ireland play very like Leinster. If France are going to play very like Toulouse, I think what you'll see on Sunday is Ireland going through 25, 30 phases occasionally, taking the French team to places they weren't taken by the Scots, and monopolising possession, and gradually wearing them down. And I think, I do actually think Ireland are going to win on Sunday. Definitely. Jamie? Uh, I, I saw during the week, the bookies had us at like um, minus or plus 14, basically 14 points favourite. Um, and I thought that was I thought that was outrageous. If I'm honest, um, I think it's going to be a lot tighter than that. Um, I think it's like I, I keep thinking Leinster to lose. So I think the first game this season, um, Leinster got into an arm wrestle with Toulouse. Uh, it was unstructured. They forced things a lot. Um, they let Toulouse counterattack quite a bit, as in they didn't kick the ball off the park. They kept it in the park a lot. Kicked long, um, and Toulouse got into the game. They took their opportunity. And then you flip it to the other side, where Leinster then, when they played at home, controlled it, controlled possession, controlled territory, controlled the tempo of the game, were, were clinical and blew them off the park. 
Um, I think that's the way this, that's the way this game is going to go. I, I, if if it goes that the second way where Ireland control the tempo and control the territory and possession, it'll probably be tight till about like most games with Ireland till about the 50th, 60th minute, and then Ireland will just they'll they'll pull away. What do you think, Brian? Do, does the does the context of it matter? Does the fact that like we started off here going, who's worried? Where, or when do we panic? Does that have an effect? I think there's going to be a huge focus on performance and not worry about looking at the scoreboard when the clock goes red and, 80, and it shows 80 minutes. Not worry about that. Because um, it's easy to say, you know, talk about process, but if, if you, Joe has talked about it in the past as uh, rather than 180 minute game, 81 minute games and owning and winning the, winning the minute and winning the moment. And I think that's where the, there'll be a huge focus this week of owning every um, situation that you find yourself in, in attack or in defense, and doing your best possible role um, in, in that play. And I think all of those cumulative moments will add up to, to an Irish victory. I sense that there's a good performance uh, coming. It's a tough, big French team that are, I don't know, I think you scratch below the surface and, and they're, they're still a bit yellow. Um, even with Toulouse going you know, incredibly well, I think um, I'm kind of contradicting myself because Ireland can put in a great performance but still only win by six or seven points because in reality it is the Six Nations and there aren't too many landslide victories um, against France or, uh, or a team or a country of, of that quality. So I fancy Ireland to win it but by a score. Um, but I hope they play really well. And I hope France play well because it's going to make us drive our standards. Um, so, you know, the World Rugby needs a good French team as well. Um, we need them back playing, and, and the public wants to watch some of the tries they've scored over the course of, of, of you know, particularly last, um, last, last outing against Scotland. So I fancy Ireland to, uh, to do it, and hopefully with a much improved performance. Yeah, the World Rugby needs a good French team from next week on. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> <Right. laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Brian O'Driscoll, Jamie Heaslip, and Jerry Thornley. So that was our night with Draco, Jimmy Heaslip, and Jerry Thornley. And it was a lot of fun. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. Uh, we'll be back on Monday uh, to pick over the bones of whatever happens uh, in the Viva on Sunday and lots of other stuff as well. So we'll see everybody then.